One of my core values is transparency and authenticity. I'm a firm believer in looking for that in the counterparties that I, I deal with. Tell us your roadmap. Tell us that this is actually being sought through, that you've got the credibility and you've got these nine things where you're going to hit the ball out of the park and then you've got this 10th thing that you that is still six months out or a year out. Hello and welcome to the Finterview, where each episode we have an exciting guest discussing a range of topics important to the fintech community today. I'm your host, Daniel Cronin, and in this episode, we are joined by Ajit Ramachandran, a seasoned product and commercial focused executive, having spent time at a number of large players in the space, such as Barclays and Intuit, as well as being an advisory council member to Pay UK. Ajit, welcome to the Finterview. Delighted to have you on. Excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Super. Um, Ajit, for our listeners, it would be great just uh, to get a little bit of background on how you arrived in fintech, what has been your journey to date, and where are you today? Great question, and it gives me an opportunity to reflect back on my career. So I actually started my career way back when, I won't name years, <laughs> you'll get that from my LinkedIn, but uh, started off in embedded systems software development for what was then Hewlett-Packard. So I was building equipment, software for equipment to test cell phone the base stations, did that for a number of years before I got more interested in, you know, meeting with customers and getting to know their needs. And that led to a traditional business school degree. And that also included a second degree in design and innovation. And that brought me to London when Barclays came to recruit at our business school. My career here has been focused on a range of financial services at Barclays. And I, you know, Barclays has been a great training ground for me. A lot of foundation across retail banking, payments in particular, a stint in wealth, and then coming back full circle to payments where I led international expansion for our payment acceptance business. And then more recently, I've uh, kind of come full circle going from tech to financial services and now fintech, working at Intuit QuickBooks, where I've been looking after our international strategy for fintech. Interesting angle of attack then. So not fintech born and bred like a lot of people. You come from more technology first and was there a pull from financial services that was intriguing to you? Or was it just simply the fact that financial service was being eaten by technology? That was the intersection of your career to date to moving into the space. Good question. Obviously, business school is opens up the floodgates of all the different career opportunities out there, whether it's consulting, investment banking, etc. I think key to me was to continue to grow and uh, push for differentiation in as many dimensions as I could. And along the journey to applying to business school, I actually um, also came across a foundation called the Robert Twigo Foundation, which supports minorities in financial services, minority leaders in financial services. So that actually got me thinking about a career in financial services. So my stint in the summer was in New York, uh, where I uh, worked in fixed income research for one of the fixed income research funds. I decided that I loved the energy of financial services, but I didn't want to be sitting in a room looking at reports and providing opinions. I'd rather go out and build stuff and make stuff happen. So I came back looking for executive leadership programs, which is again why Barclays stood out. It was an opportunity to test myself internationally and just retail and commercial banking was the side of the business that I thought would suit my uh, temperament. And I got to say, from the previous discussions we've had and stalking your LinkedIn profile. You've got a, a technology background, but a keen interest in product 
and then maybe individually not that unique but combining them quite unique a strong interest in the commercial aspect of the business usually i often see product people wanting to get into tech tech people wanting to get into product but i rarely see tech people wanting to be commercially focused and i see commercial people whether they want to or not never having the requisite skills to get tech focused you've kind of straddled all three tell me a bit about that it's pretty unique yeah, some of it is just kind of embracing the opportunities that come along. Some of it is obviously pivoting based on where I sense that I get more energy. Having that stint in technology, extended stint in technology, gives me a pretty good handle on durability, feasibility, and really kind of allows me to build great relationships with our engineering and tech teams. What also is incredibly interesting is along this journey, particularly to business school, my stint in the summer, etc. I actually found that I've got a pretty good handle on spreadsheets and modeling, <laughs> financial modeling to be to be precise. And that actually got me interested in uh, things like discounted cash flows, valuation, and really revenue modeling, etc. So when the opportunities came along time and again at Barclays in particular, I think it just allowed me to start embracing that full on. It's like, you know, what also kind of resonates with me is thinking about who the target customer is. And then once I've got that kind of clear view, then it's about where is the value for that customer? And then how do we kind of justifiably price and monetize our product or service so that the customer is obviously sensing the value and willing to pay for that value? So that kind of just, it's a nice little triangle, if you will, being able to bring the um, the strategy, the technology, and the commercial side of things together, which is also why I've really benefited from roles where I'm able to bring all three aspects to where I work and operate. And so apply that sort of high-level theory on an example in the market that either you've been involved in bringing to market, one of the areas that you've worked, or from the provider's perspective, trying to bring that to market for a fintech or someone who's looking to embed finance. Tell us your personal experiences there. I'm going to speak broadly because I think rather than getting to specifics, I think it's helpful to think about this in a general sense. What is often missed is when you're speaking about a target customer, whether it's an enterprise customer or a small business, we often neglect to understand the customer is not thinking about the solution in individually nicely gift-wrapped categories or products. They're thinking about their use cases, their journey, and how things can be easier for them. How do we make life easier for them, right? So I always kind of lead with that. Let's think about the target customer and the problems we're trying to solve for them and what uses, use cases we're building and powering for them. And I'll throw a couple of examples in there. For example, we had retail customers in the bank, and these retail customers often have multi-channel needs, being able to serve up a customer experience that is seamless from online to offline or offline to online. So an omni-channel solution makes a ton of sense, especially if they're also looking to operate across geographies. So that is obviously a sense of the kind of value I thought should float up to the top in our priority list of things we would do as we sought to expand internationally. Likewise, in any sort of small business focused area, there's so many different areas where small businesses have needs. So there's obviously the need to get paid, there's the need to make payments, there's a need to sort of manage their working capital. 
So how do we kind of power these in a way that kind of flows rather than the customers having to think about these solutions individually? And I am a huge fan of open banking and on money movement through open banking in particular. So that is an example of the type of value I've sort of focused on highlighting and educating our teams on. So how can we kind of unlock more use cases for customers in a way that's, you know, easy for them to comprehend, but then also delivers tremendous value to them at a very, you know, reasonable cost. And so give me an example of where you feel open banking is a no-brainer for a customer. Particularly in markets where money movement through open banking is actually a reality that is actually allowed through the regulatory institutions that govern those markets. I think the, uh, in, the, in the small business case in particular, and perhaps even raising up to the mid-market, there's a tremendous opportunity to handle both the B2B payment side as well as the invoicing side of payment, the getting paid and the making payment side. So I think that's an incredibly compelling opportunity. More because, you know, there's no friction, right? There's no need for the customer to have to take up a new banking offering. This is just going to work for them with their existing bank and institution, financial institution. So I think that's a massive opportunity and it will take some scaled plays for it to sort of become broadly viable. And so one of the criticisms thrown at open banking is that it um, it solves one person's problem, but a payment by definition is transactional. And if for something to gain true market share and adoption, it needs to have something in it for both people. One of the values that card transactions offer for both people is ubiquity. I have a Visa card in my wallet and I, with except for a few odd supermarkets in Amsterdam, I have a 99% confidence everywhere I go that this will allow me to buy what I want. The merchant on the flip side to that has an equal confidence that if they accept Visa, a 40 or 50% of the people that come through that door are going to be able to make payments. The merchant, I see open banking as a benefit for the merchant there in that it reduces some of the costs for them to receive and maybe some of the time, but I don't see the ubiquity for the buyer. And even if I did have the ubiquity for the buyer, what is the incentive for me to use that as opposed to the piece of plastic or increasingly the the digital token of that plastic in my wallet or phone? So again, this can never be a one-size-fits-all. We need to be really clear on the target customers and the target use cases that we're going after that we power and unlock through this uh, technology and, and through this piece of regulation. I'm a consumer, let's say, play this out. And, you know, the, you see the window blinds behind me that I had to get installed through my uh, blind installer. They sent me an invoice and the invoice obviously required payment through bank transfer because it is more expensive for them to accept card payments. And for a lot of small businesses, they actually prefer to get paid through faster payments, which is incredibly fast and zero to no cost in the UK. So I got the invoice and as soon as I opened it, I realized I had to set them up as a payee. I had to then put their details in, make sure I got that right, then get the uh, the amount right, and then send off the amount, making sure there was enough in my bank account to do so. That's three or four steps of friction that I didn't fancy doing on a weekday morning. So what did I do? I put it off, which meant that the installer had to chase me for getting this service paid for. So there was an invoice being at risk of being late just purely because there's a mild amount of friction. 
And there was no alternate payment method on offer. Perhaps if they had offered a card payment, it might still require me to put in my card details or have it preloaded from my browser and go through that sort of service, but then it would cost them. So this is an example where something like open banking would be brilliant, right? So essentially, you've got this invoice coming through, you click pay now, it fires up your bank account on your mobile or the website on your laptop or desktop. You punch in your details to log in, you're authenticated, the payment amount is pre-populated, their bank details are already loaded on their site, and the invoice gets paid. And that's instantaneous. That is the kind of power we should see happening through open banking. Us trying to replace every card payment use case with open banking isn't necessarily the first port of call. There are some rich and perfectly suited use cases that I would say we should target with. Hence, the, you know, the friction, the value, the durability, all that kind of lines up. And there's a commercial value here because the uh, seller is getting paid faster. There's less friction for me. So there's an opportunity to charge a few pennies, for example, in this instance. So the example you gave there is compelling. I see no flow with the logic. So the next natural question is, why isn't it the de facto mechanism today? If I was a tradesman and I was choosing between cards, open banking, or perhaps cash, if digital was the only option, it's a compelling case. I have been on the the other side of that, rolling my eyes at the, uh, the, the four steps I have to do uh, before I can go back to playing hide and seek with my children or anything like that. Why is it not ubiquitous? What are the challenges the technology faces, the participants trying to expand the technology? When will this be the de facto way that things are done? Sure. So I'm going to answer that a couple of different ways. Obviously, this question kind of brings us squarely into the topic of the day, which is, you know, how do we get fintechs to work better with larger enterprises? What are the modus operandi looking at it from the enterprise lens or the larger partner lens, right? I think that is the issue. So how do we ensure that the decision-making that's happening within enterprises can take stock of the opportunity that's out there And how do fintechs play a role in educating, reassuring, and making these things happen? Because I think that is the core challenge here. Because everyone's waiting for a scaled player to blink first, if you will. And Apple is famous for being a fast follower. And suddenly, it's almost as though they invented the technology first. I think everyone talks about that in the press constantly. But it does take somebody kind of taking that first leap. A scaled player taking that leap would obviously help. There's obviously players doing that already in the UK and the European markets, subject to you know the open banking money movement being available as a specific use case. But that's true not just for open banking, right? I think a lot of what you're touching on does require, particularly when the technology is new, the way the use case is going to work is requiring specific investments of time and effort and due diligence that sizable players are going to be averse to taking huge risks until they know this is proven, there's significant market demand, and that they are not going to risk current business revenue lines. Makes sense. And uh, so I suppose that's a nice step into one of the subjects that I know a lot of entrepreneurs have on their mind and some of the notes that we specifically made when we, we knew we were going to have you on. Some of the increase in adoption needs improvements in the speed of innovation, new use cases that make it absolutely compelling that a user forces a merchant's hands to 
to accept this new methodology. If you were an entrepreneur or a leader of a young startup looking at exploring innovation in this space and trying to validate market sizing, inevitably you're going to be trying to sell this to bigger players in the space. And so what should the fintech entrepreneur consider when pitching the big boys of payments, whether it's bank themselves, maybe an embedded finance play, likes an accounting play? What should they be thinking of? How can they win those deals? Absolutely. Yeah. I've given this some thoughts so I can kind of have a couple of takeaways or three takeaways. Talking in threes always helps so that this is a benefit to your listeners and other fintechs that are looking to pitch to the likes of myself. What I think is first and foremost is and this is, you know, the first rule of thumb, and they know this, but it's I can't call this out enough. You have to remember that this is a long game. You're in it for the long haul. And as much as you're pitching to somebody at a particular institution, it's also about how much you impress that individual when they move on to perhaps their next role or the, the role after that, and how much effort you've put into wowing them both with yourself in terms of your credibility and the ability to deliver this but also the proposition you're currently working on that you're looking to land in the hands of this larger partner. So that's incredibly important. And part of this is also the tactical, right? Put in the effort because I've had, I mean, I'm just going to give you an example. I'm not going to name names here, but there was a fintech that did an incredible amount of legwork to get in front of me not too long ago. And they saw me at a conference, we had the conversation, and then we obviously had some good conversations leading up to it. And then even though I wasn't sure that they were going to be the most compelling, I suggested we pull them in for an RFP. And at the end of the day, you know, we had put in a considerable amount of thought into the types of questions that were important for the RFP. But at the end of the day, the RFP responses were almost assumptions that we already would know the answer or they were lacking in detail, lacking in the kind of things that would give a large organization comfort that, you know, this fintech is here to committed and ready to deliver. And that was a real shame because that kind of just got them out of the running pronto for all the legwork and investment that had gone into it. That is where you can't, you absolutely have to do the work. You have to put the, your best foot forward. On the other hand, there was a perhaps a front and runner in the same RFP scenario, and we knew their offering was compelling. They were already working with hugely compelling players, for example, in the market. But my God, the amount of response detail they put into the uh, RFP, it really does matter. So do the work. Remembering that you're in it for the long haul is probably my sort of first piece of <laughs> suggestion slash uh, advisory. The second thing to remember is as much as you're doing the work, you have an opportunity to really understand the broader customer focus, the broader strategy of the business you're trying to help. Because the more you can take a holistic approach, because you really have built an understanding of the business's needs and the customers they're trying to solve for, all the sort of the strategic elements of their product strategy that are still kind of lacking that you have an opportunity to fill a gap in. And perhaps it's not just you, but you've also thought of two other partners that you can bring along to this conversation to make that conversation richer, more fruitful. That stands out. So really kind of thinking more holistically at how you can solve for that business is really important. Because all too often, look, I mean, we kind of take a very measured approach when we assess. And when I say we, it's my approach. 
and in general, the larger organizations have been part of, we kind of want to see what's out there. We don't have the time to look at every nook and cranny of the market because we've also got keeping the machinery running job <laughs> to deal with. So how do we ensure we're on top of what's happening that sets off a light bulb in our brains? The open making example I called out to earlier came because a partner educated us about the potential here, right? And it just set off a light bulb for us. And that just kind of made them stand out. So really thinking about how your capabilities can solve for the customer and help them with their strategic goals is just super duper important. The third one is a bit of an oddball. The third suggestion or uh, recommendation I have is, you know, it's like any sales game. Nine times out of 10, you're going to hear no. So as much as you're thinking about this, playing this for the long haul, as much as you can be strategic in building and bringing compelling ideas to the partner, you have to know that it's not about you. Sometimes it's just that the business has decided to go in a different direction. Sometimes it's the fact that there's internal considerations that whether it's related to resourcing and investment, whether it's related to the fact that we've got some specific due diligence concerns, some of which we can share, some of which we can't share, that the fintech needs to be mindful of. And in this, I kind of want to unpack this a little bit, right? As you talk to an established player, as you talk to a big established player, you know, like Safun, I've worked with, it's uh, there are some benefits and some pitfalls. The benefits are there are well-established processes, so it's really useful to know that they've got a checklist of stuff that you need to meet. You need to be able to take off a number of these checklist items and they'll be able to share as much of it as relevant for your RFP or current discussion. So it does ensure that there are no unpleasant surprises. And that's a really important thing. Sometimes when you go to a smaller organization, when a fintech is pitching to a smaller organization, or perhaps even something that a startup pitching to a scale-up, for example, there's things getting defined on both sides, which could lead to odd surprises, unpleasant surprises that you didn't expect. What you want to do is as much as possible as the person pitching, ensure there are no surprises coming from your end. You are super clear about what it is you're putting on the table from a strategic lens, from a capability and technology lens, and from obviously eventually the commercial lens so that there are no challenges or bumps in the road. Interesting feedback. Just on the last point now, I suppose taking ethics off the table just for the purpose of that third point. Every salesman worth his salt has been on an RFP where a competitor has uh, been offering something that you know either doesn't exist or hasn't been built and lost the RFP because they were honest and clear about the fact that they didn't have that functionality, even if their competitor said, mm, we do. Just from a strictly, you know, a sharky attitude, commercialistic approach. If you can win a deal or win an RFP and then build the stuff afterwards, is that a legitimate approach to trying to win these deals? They shake it till you make it? Or just by the virtue of the fact that you're serving a, a larger entity, don't do it and stay away from deals where you have to bend over backwards? I mean, there's a bit of that happening in every conversation, I'll be honest with you. So there's a bit of the bigger institution being optimistic, aggressive about the potential size of the opportunity. And therefore, you know why, because it's a scale deal, we need to kind of think about the commercials so that it's good for the business. And obviously, 
the fintech has to kind of ensure their costs are compelling. So there's that angle, right? The other angle is the fintech that says, it's almost there. Oh, we can do this better than someone else when I when we have to built it out. I'm a son. One of my core values is transparency and authenticity. So I'm a fun believer in looking for that in the counterparties that I, I deal with. So it's really, to the extent that is possible, tell us your roadmap. Tell us that this is actually being sought through, that you've got the credibility and you've got these nine things where you're going to hit the ball out of the park. And then you've got this 10th thing that you that is still six months out or a year out. I'd also refer back to the other points that give confidence to the to your larger partner, being able to say, look, we did this for X, Y, Z, and we said it would take six months and we delivered this in four, or we said it would take six months and it delivered in eight, but we did it and we have we are good for what we're saying we will be able to do. So I think it's better to take that approach because the one thing you can't earn back more quickly is reputation. It's very hard to earn a reputation. It's very easy to lose it. And I mean, I, I, it sounds very cliche, but it's so important, right? Because the one thing, and, and this is something, you know, fintechs at different stages of their growth are going to have different levels of. One is their financial stability, their, uh, their capitalization position is obviously something that they're going to have to work toward. The second is their reputation, their credibility. And being sure that you're absolutely transparent about the jurisdictions you're banking in or the jurisdictions you're serving, the other providers you work with, the licenses you have or don't have, and kind of being super transparent about that because all of that informs reputation and all of that informs the provider, you know, the partners trusting you. And the fact that you are still in the game, because this is, as I said, a long haul, and being able to sort of stay in the game means you're not out of the running after that first or second conversation because something came out that wasn't to the partner's satisfaction or increased their concerns because it does undermine both your personal credibility and the credibility of the organization you represent. What do you say to the bootstrapped entrepreneur who is trying to win one of these large deals? One of the recurring themes I see when it's David and Goliath rather than David versus Goliath. David's trying to woo Goliath rather than destroy. I find there's an, there's an intrinsic asymmetry in what is offered and what is wanted on both parts. So the bootstrapped entrepreneur is building this super new product. By definition, it's new. By definition, less proven than something that exists on the market. But they wouldn't be in the discussion in the first place if they didn't have something compelling for the bank. The bank on the other side, I think the famous phrase is, wants to, to be the first to be third. So new, but not the guinea pig and not the um, not the one after the guinea pig where you're clearing up all of your mistakes still. What should an entrepreneur be doing to think about that? In the world of banking, you hear about innovation labs where a product can be tested in sort of a, the FCA has a regulatory sandbox where you can do whatever you want in the confines of this sandbox. Should these bootstrap entrepreneurs be pitching exclusively innovation labs at banks and saying, hey, you can try this in a safe environment for yourself if you like it. We can then figure out how we make it all of the RFP uh, grade requirements more robust, more scalable, more secure. But I'm not going to invest two, my 2 million seed fund or my 5 million series A on security, scalability, robust and resilience without any hope of being able to win this deal because they might invest in all three of those things, but by the end of it, have no money left to actually 
make the thing that you originally wanted to be secure and resilient and scalable. How does a bootstrapped entrepreneur balance those two things? You hit the nail on the head because, I mean, high quality leadership, seasoned leadership is hopefully part of what that bootstrapped entrepreneur has at the, in their C-suite. And it's about making those right prioritization calls because there has to be a balance of chasing after scale, which goes with all the additional investments in security and resilience and all of the things you just called out, or, you know, the opportunity to go after smaller deals, which allow you to gradually build up scale, but individually perhaps don't require as much customization, bespoke. What I would say is two things, right? Again, be really, really clear on what your USP is, being really clear about what it is that you do incredibly well. Because that is what is going to get you that conversation in the first place. You may have an investor on your board, or you might have a relationship with somebody that's really senior with the partner or bank organization that gets you a seat at the table. But unless there's something compelling that brings you that next conversation, it's not going to be feasible. So get really tight on that, because as much as I'm a fan of hackathons and incubators and things like that, uh, innovation labs, they're so difficult to translate into meaningful capabilities unless there's that process already within the organization, the bank or other organization that says, okay, these incubators, we regularly review them and create this kind of relationship or happy marriage with three other business units that could harness and, and use that capability. If that exists, then great. You should absolutely invest time and effort in that because you know there's a couple of business units in there that could take advantage of your service and you can do this better than anyone else. So there you go. But then in the other instance, being really clear about how you protect yourself and the so small seed stage investment you have against a disproportionate amount of money allocated to winning this big deal, only to find that several months later, it's not quite panning out. And there's another word of caution here as well. And this will also come down to how the deal is structured and how you actually kind of take things forward and what predictions you put in from a fintech standpoint into that organization. So, you know, if you hit certain thresholds, some performance hurdles, that there is some money, regardless of whether the ultimate product launches or not, because that's going to be an important way to ensure that your organization is continuing to preserve its seed fund, et cetera. So to answer your question, I think it is not a straightforward one. It depends on sir, and it has to do with taking a look at A, what your USB is, also being really clear about the nature of the incubator or the innovation labs in the organization that you're focused on to make sure that there's sufficient safeguards and that this is just on a <laughs> bottomless train. So, so I think that is going to be really important. Thank you. Uh, so I just want to do a 180 now. Bank partnerships can work in multiple ways in financial services and financial technology. What we've discussed is the bank being the customer. In many more cases, what we find is the bank is the supplier or is a de facto supplier in any financial chain by definition. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the different ways that fintechs can work with banks and, and how that might be different from geography. So in the United Kingdom, for example, with the FCA, you have a effectively, you've got regulatory aggregation and delegation of license. So for the listeners not in the United Kingdom, it's very common for 
I think you call it a sponsor bank in the States, a UK bank to work with licensed financial technology entities to basically offer the backbone infrastructure of the licensed service, the bank account, the payment. And then the financial technology will have their own license and have autonomy on who they choose to express this service to. And so you have an interesting, almost an, an aggregation of risk. So a bank's not having to serve thousands and thousands of merchants or small businesses or individuals. They can work with a single EMI, popular one in the United Kingdom would be WISE or maybe a currency cloud. And then those institutions take responsibility, but effectively they are, it's a regulatory delegation and a customer support delegation. The flow is still in most cases running through those same banks. On the other hand, you have pure wrappers. So where certain other banks do not want to delegate that responsibility, what they'll say to a large brand is, sure, you know lots more about your customers than I do. You know why they want to pay that invoice. Maybe you're an accounting platform or some kind of lending platform and you've got rich data that the bank doesn't have access to. And so the bank will say, you know that customer better than I do. You know what their cash flows are what their payment cycles are. That's your platform solves all that. And through the richness of that data, you feel you could offer them a better financial service than us, the bank. Nonetheless, you are not a financial technology company. You are a technology company. And I don't trust you to take the compliance and regulatory responsibilities seriously. Or even if you did, I don't think you've got the relevant controls in place to manage that risk. Ergo, we're not going to delegate our responsibility what we will do is we will let you white label our platform and you can build on top of that experience. But when that customer registers and a payment goes missing, still me they're talking to. We might even say hello Intuit if it calls on the Intuit line, or we might say hello Zero if it calls on the Zero line. But it's still the bank behind the scenes. And then the third way is sort of the matchmaking process that we see, where there's a financial technology software company in the middle with no license. But all of the controls that a budding entrepreneur would need to avoid, stuff like co-mingling cash, obviously we don't want FTX scandals, client money segregation, safeguarding automation, compliance workflows, maybe integrations with fraud spotting tools. So it technologically has all of the tools to stop the large report of the um, malfeasance and bad action, but they're just a software play and they will act as a matchmaker between the bank, the licensed entity that has the accounts, the effects, the payment, the loans, and the brand that's looking to target a specific niche. I firmly see those as sort of the regulatory delegation, the sales channel delegation, and then the financial dating models of financial services. It would be great to get your thoughts on each of the models, pros and cons, and whether you think that there's space for all three, or whether you think they'll all die, or one will be a winner. Sure. That's a great question and a big one. <laughs> you saved up the blue whale for the end. So before we kind of jump into this particular piece, though, I, I kind of want to take one step back, which is there's three different buckets from my point of view when I think of partnerships and relationships, right? One is the straight supplier vendor type arrangement where you're technically just providing a service and you're part of a whole procurement process and you're fulfilling the need, uh, either a technology need or a fintech need or a bank type need, but typically less so the bank, but it's more fintech or tech need to the customer who's kind of going out and have, signing, signing up with this provider. 
that is pretty much well-established processes. They have a strict governance and control framework, supplier frameworks, etc. So the key thing there is to both for both parties, my urge is make sure a you're putting your best foot forward if you're the fintech filling out the contract or you know the initial bid. The second is obviously to the procurer trying to be more realistic, sensible about how they can not ask inane things that are applicable to the broader bank but are less relevant to the immediate business that you're actually procuring for. I think that's really important. So there's efficiency on both sides. So we'll put that one to a side. The second one, which also will park in short order, is where this is more of a distribution or referral type arrangement where it's sort of just hands off. There is a branding element to it. So it's about, like you said, it's the sales angle. It's like who is actually signing the contract with the customer and who is supplying the leads. That's essentially, that's kind of the relationship here. We have seen various models of that in payments, like with ISOs and things like that. So that model obviously typically doesn't require a whole lot of risk-taking for the person providing the leads. Like a SaaS company could be providing leads to the fintech. We, you know, Intuit has a relationship with PayPal, for example, in the UK and GoCardless. So we kind of send leads out to GoCardless and PayPal. And obviously the customer benefits from having access to those payment solutions today. So that is more of a distribution type arrangement. What I would say in that instance is be mindful of, you know, beyond the fact that there's obviously a, a referral, what else can you do to kind of make that relationship a win-win for both parties, right? How do you perhaps, how does the fintech support, if, if you're deep-pocketed, how do you support the, some of the marketing initiatives that the the lead gen providers giving you so that you, you are more standing out and compelling for to them? And then obviously making sure that the process that you offer once that lead is offered up is as frictionless and seamless as possible so that the customer is not jumping through hoops in order to avail of your service. That's going to be a really important thing, reduce the friction. That's going to be key. So coming back to your question about what I think is most interesting and probably the most difficult is the capability piece of the strategic partnership where you've got different models in place, as you alerted to. I actually like to think of this in the, with the lens of it, with a design lens, really think about the end-to-end process, end-to-end journey that is the customer journey. And what is the journey for the procurer or the recipient of the service? And then what is the journey for the supplier or providing partner? And, you know, sometimes those roles can be intermixed because the flows can switch swim lanes based on where the information or data transfer is happening. And as you also rightly called out, it is the balance of, is it a tech provider or a tech player, software player that is procuring services from a fintech slash regulated financial institution in order to offer that service to their customer and obviously continue to deepen and preserve that relationship with the customer. So that is kind of what happens. So for an example of that is a payment facilitator type arrangement where you've got a SaaS player or a software provider who is looking to deepen their relationship with their customer. So not only is the customer taking advantage of the core software, but then they're also dealing with some of their money movement and financial needs through that provider because the software provider is actually managing all that complexity for them behind the scenes. So I think it comes down to understanding what's important to both parties in the first instance. And what are the non-negotiables, right? So the software provider may 
have a goal of making sure that every regulated or licensed or risk-taking activity in this value chain is outsourced. So in that instance, they would like to have one provider that is able to handle all of that complexity and is also happy to be white-labeled, and therefore everything is handled by the white-label provider. The pitfall there or the caveat there is obviously, do you want to put it all in one basket do you, so that you're actually suddenly tied to one massive major strategic partner? That becomes difficult from a commercial angle because they've got more negotiating power. So that then you think about, do you want to have a backup partner building redundancy and, you know, the ability to kind of switch some of your traffic based on the fact that you've got multiple partners that you work with and they're both happy to be right labeled. From a customer standpoint, one contract may say the name of provider A, the other contract may say provider B is behind the scenes, but essentially all of that is. But then when you start thinking about it this way, then it starts to more complexity. You have multiple integrations that you have to set up and you have to deal with, God forbid, someone picks up the phone and says the wrong name, right? <laughs> so you've got challenges like that. And then taking it even one step further, if you start divvying up not just the swim lanes for the existing value chain, but even within the value chain, you know, do you want to have multiple onboarding partners? Do you want to have multiple transaction monitoring and fraud partners? I think it starts to get quite interesting, and which is where some of the newer models like orchestration are coming in, where, the, as you've described it, there's one provider that is taking the complexity away from somebody like an ad, I mean, the zero or into it, and is able to sort of stitch together multiple services for you, and you have to deal with the one payment orchestration partner. But then the challenge there is the orchestration partner is actually feeding multiple mouths and they themselves are an extra mouth to feed. So it might lead to greater costs for the service itself. So that's the type of consideration. But to answer your question, I think there's an opportunity and there's certainly space for multiple markets, sorry, multiple models to coexist. And it really comes down to the specific use case you're trying to solve. And it's really important to Think about that and continuously iterate because you don't have to say that just because you put in all this effort to set yourself up as a payment facilitator, that that's your do or die. You can evolve that because there are hybrid models that are increasingly emerging, not just in the payment space, but also when you think about the existence of an EMI and a lending engine and a payments provider all kind of being part of the solution. So there's lots of platform solutions that are coming out as well. It's a question of what's the appetite of the organization, the scale at which they're operating. And a lot of this comes down to the doability, the engineering, and the business case at the end of the day. Being able to kind of, at the first and foremost, solve for the customer problem in the, in the best way possible, create a delightful experience, and then doing so in a way that you know, you're know you not stuck three years trying to launch something that's just going to move one widget from here to there. <laughs> So just beginning to wrap up the, the call and taking everything that you've said, well, from how to pitch large banks to how to partner with large banks to um, open banking today and what's in its way for adoption, let's play a fun game of prediction or rather your outlook on the industry. The year is 2033 and the world hasn't collapsed. It looks rather like it is today. But from your perspective, what would you be disappointed in? What would the state of financial services both the service, the availability, how it's consumed, how it's interacted with in everyday life from a business and a, a retail aspect. What would you be disappointed in, in 10 years' time? 
Would it be if it looked exactly the same as today? I think the obvious answer there would be yes. But is there innovation that you think is inevitable that you think by 2033, we have to have done this? What would you be disappointed with? And what would be a more hopeful outlook of 10 years? What differences? And I'm not talking from the eyes of the, the supplier, you know, the infrastructure players, from the everyman in the street, from the trader who's having to chase Egypt because he hasn't had his, uh, his carpentry work done because of those four steps of friction, or from Daniel in the supermarket looking like an idiot because he can't buy his grapes. Like what world change, what world change or lack of it would you be disappointed in in 10 years? And what world change would you be super happy with? I would be most disappointed if fundamentally nothing changed in the next 10 years, right? If we still have this trudging along, slow pace of innovation, slow pace of disruption in the marketplace, and I'm not just talking the UK, but globally, if we continue to trudge along, I think that would be profoundly disappointing because, look, there's enough happening more broadly. Uh, obviously, we talk about AI and machine learning, which is reams and reams of data and statistical modeling that is going to make us more powerful. And how do you use that and harness that power, whether it's risk models and analytics models and things like that, that just make things so much more efficient, so much simpler, whether it's improving all threads, whether it's improving underwriting. There's so much that can be done that minimizes false positives and all those sorts of things. So I am a big believer in embedded finance. I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity in making sure your financial services are part of your everyday life, that you're not having to consciously think about it, that it is part of your, you know, Uber is obviously the most quoted example, but, you know, how can you be the Uber of your everyday? How do you ensure that financial services are available to you as a consumer in your everyday lives and you aren't to think too much about it? The flip side of that is obviously how you protect it while you're availing of these services so that you could do this with the blink of a thumbprint or a facial recognition or whatever, but then how do you make sure that you have actually authorized it and you have actually remembered <laughs> that you did it so, so the service is accessible to you. So that's going to be really important. And let's also not forget that 10 years from now, the generational shift of what's important to millennials and Gen Zs and boomers and different populations is also going to skew more toward the what the needs of the younger population are. So it's also about making sure that the high street bank continues to be relevant to those population shifts, those demographic shifts. Because what was said and done, the big banks, particularly in the UK and, and certainly around the world, have a lot of amazing capability and relationships with corporates, small businesses, consumers, et cetera, that we should not write off just yet. Because it's more a question of how those banks choose to you know, pick up the pace and how they think about their acceleration of their strategies, how they think about ways to creatively bring together different pieces of capability. So they surprise and delight, that's the key, surprise and delight those customers so that they are more relevant, more meaningful to them. I just find more and more that all these banks have great things that they haven't done enough with. So how do they kind of bring those things together and cater to these younger audiences and make that meaningful? So. I would look forward to see what innovations happen in that space, because for me, the use case is more important than the payment mechanism or the financial services mechanism behind it. So how do we create delightful experiences all around 
that are also surprising in the right way and delighting in the right way. That's interesting. So you um you anticipate or you don't anticipate, but something that a hopeful outlook on the the next ten years of fintech or financial services is a a closing of the gap between the consumer and the bank. That's interesting. I imagine uh, there's a lot of people who would agree with you and a lot of people would disagree with you there. I hear a lot of sentiment in the space about banks both being too far away, closing branches, only being accessible on mobile. And also there's a separate argument to say banks should be regarded as utility rather than brand. So it's interesting the way we'll see this play out. Yeah, but again, just to be clear, I'm not necessarily suggesting that we go back to having branches or go back to brick and mortar type approaches. My point is, how do you create, what is the hero benefit or the hero use case that the banks can lead with that continues to make them relevant to customers? And if, if it has to happen through a myriad set of use cases like the Uber ride or the grocery shopping or, or whatever else, then so be it. But but the fact is that they're relevant because they're able to embed themselves into your customers' lives, perhaps visibly, perhaps invisibly. But the point is the relevance doesn't go away. Ajit, great to have you on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure digging into the mind and I hope we can get you back again soon. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Daniel. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. 